All right, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. And we will be reading from verse 21 down through verse 24. We will read responsibly. I'll begin in verse 21. We'll begin reading together in verse 22. The Bible says there, And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him, only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck and until she weaned him. And when he, she had weaned him, she took with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. I'm going to preach this morning a sermon entitled this, The Greatest Mother in the Bible. Again, that's my opinion, all right? Uh, and I have chosen Hannah. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us today as we elevate and talk about the role of the mother. While this is a sermon that is preached oftentimes on Mother's Day, Lord, it is a topic that needs to be touched on more often than just once a year. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have tender hearts. May we, um, may we reevaluate what society has so wrongly taught us now for decades. And may we look at it from a biblical standpoint. May we be biblicists when it comes to our approach to the home. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Eight common challenges that are faced by mothers with young children. There's probably more than this. This list is not all-inclusive, but I'd say these eight definitely fit here. Low self-respect, monotony and loneliness... Stress from too many demands, lack of time with husband, confusion about discipline, the home atmosphere, need for outside role models, and the training of children. Any of you moms here able to relate with any of those? Being a mother is a difficult task. It is a difficult task, yet it has been greatly, greatly devalued by our society. I guess about three years ago, it was just me and Matthew alone in the car, and I asked him this question. I said, Matthew, what is the difference between boys and girls? He was uh, probably five at the time, and he got a big smile on his face. And he blushed, and he didn't want to answer the question. I said, Matthew, it's okay. What is the difference between boys and girls? Next thing I know, he's unbuckling his seatbelt. I said, what are you doing? He said, Dad, I don't want to say it out loud. And so he got up, and he whispered, I'll, I'll just put it this way, he whispered an anatomical answer in my ear. And I smiled, and I said back to him, I said, okay. What else is different? What else is different about boys and girls? 
men and women. And if you know Matthew, he is a serious, deep thinker. So he sat back down, put his seatbelt on, and the wheels started turning. And after a couple of minutes, he said, Dad, I don't know. I don't know what is different. What else is different about boys and girls? And so I talked to him about some of the things. But, um, um, ladies, I want, to, I want you to set aside what the culture at large has preached to you about what you are supposed to be and do as a mother. I want you to set that to the side. I want everybody here to understand, regardless of whether or not you were raised in a Christian home or a secular home, the society at large has very methodically and carefully worked to brainwash you and to tell you something that is quite different than God's Word. I'm talking about good Christian families that love the Bible and love the Lord, but they're doing fatherhood and motherhood different than what the Bible has taught, commanded, and given. What we need to do is scrap those thoughts. We need to shred those ideas that are counter to the Bible. And uh, we, need to, uh, we need to see how it is that God made you ladies different than your male counterpart. He created you with a specific purpose in mind, and it is a powerful, powerful purpose. Um, I'm going to make a statement here. Prior to making it, I want you to understand that I understand that when you make a statement that is all-inclusive, there are exceptions. All right? Does everybody understand that? There are exceptions to the rule. Men, as a whole, God created them to be logically superior to their female counterparts. Are there women who have more logic than some men? Yes. Yes. But as a whole, God created men to be logically superior. But He created women to be emotionally superior. Emotionally superior. This this, uh, holds up in my marriage, in my home. I can't tell you how many times in our home Angela has said to me, I want you to stay away from such and such. He or she is bad news. And I've said, based on what evidence? And she says this, I don't have any concrete evidence. I just know they're bad news. Now, young and dumb, right? We all start out that way. Young and dumb. Um, I thought, ah, she's crazy. She, she doesn't know what she's talking about, right? I mean, that can't be. Every time she's ever told me that, she's been right. And time has proven it. You know why? Because she is emotionally superior to me. If uh, Matthew has a logical problem, April has a problem that requires logic, by their very, very, by their very nature, they come running to me. They, I help them. But, you know, if they're having an emotional problem, they don't come to me. With Matthew, I say, throw some dirt on it and be a man. Angela just dotes all over him and just loves him. Um, They hate when they get hurt and mom's not home. (laughs) April, I'm a little bit more compassionate with. That's my little girl. You know, I I hold her and and, and coddle her for for a little while. 
But men are logically superior. Women are emotionally superior. Now, I remember as a boy, um, I grew up in the same school from kindergarten through the seventh grade. And there was a a young lady uh, that went through school with me. Her name was Jennifer. Jennifer Johnson. And, uh, you know, when you're four and five and six and seven, girls have cooties, right? So, um, you know, I I was watching Jennifer, and not from a romantic standpoint on any level, more from a competitive standpoint. We come back from summer break, am I taller than her or is she taller than me? And physically, we were growing at about the same pace. Uh, But I noticed something about Jennifer we got to the, we got to about the sixth grade, and her body began to change, and my body began to change, and my body began to take food and turn it into muscle. Her body began to take food and turn it into fat cells, and I don't mean fat cells like she was becoming large. She was becoming, her body was pre- beginning to prepare for childbirth. My body was beginning to prepare to enter the labor force and provide. Anatomically, down to the way God created us, men are built to provide the cash and women are built to provide the care. That's how God made us. Again, set aside what the culture tells you and let's focus on how God created us and the purpose he created us. Now, do I, can I provide care? At home, yes, secondarily to providing uh, the, the food and, and, and the roof over the head. Uh, I can come home at night after long days of work, and I can provide a lot of care to my kids. I tuck my kids in bed every night. Uh, I uh, will help sit down and help them with schoolwork occasionally. If I have a day off, I'll listen to my children uh, read and, and those kind of things. But primarily, God created me anatomically, physically, emotionally, logically to provide for my family financially. And God created Angela uh, as a woman to uh, provide the care for the home, the love for the home, the nurturing and raising of the children. Satan, let me just say this. God made, again, God made man to be the cash giver. He made woman to be the caregiver. Our anatomy screams this. Our emotional build screams this. Our social longings scream this. You know what my children do? My son gets a truck and he all over the house. My daughter, from the time she was little, with no training of her own, there's a doll there, there's a truck there. She picks up the doll and she plays with the doll. Because she wants to begin to care and, and love. My daughter will lay in bed at night and, and, and she has a rule. She's allowed to take one stuffed animal to bed with her. And I'll go in her room after she's fallen asleep and I'll pull back her sheets and she's got 12 stuffed animals in the bed and she's hugging them all. Hugging them all. I'll go to bed and, and my son's got his Nerf gun sitting on the nightstand. You know what I'm saying here? And look again, I know there are exceptions to rules. I, again, I, Total disclaimer, I understand that, but this is how God made us. But, but, Satan screams the exact opposite. He screams the exact opposite. Everything God has set in order, Satan has a plan to 
to, to disrupt, to confuse, to turn upside down, to cause chaos and confusion. And he does this on every single level uh, that he can, including fatherhood and motherhood. And motherhood is under great attack. It's under great attack. In fact, Satan wants nothing more than to take God's intent for mankind and womankind and flip it upside down. This is exactly what he's done in our culture for the last 60 years. What is the great calling on the life of a woman? Is it a career advancement? Is it to compete with her husband's salary? We live in a materialistic society where our husbands and wives... Our mothers and fathers are willing to offer up their children to babysitters and daycares so they can live in a nice plush house or drive a nice comfortable car or fit inside of some sort of upper middle class social stigma. And I just want to ask you this question. What is your great calling, ma'am? When you are old, let me fast forward the clock on you here. When you're old and your kids are grown, do you want to be rich in finances or do you want to be rich in family? you want to be rich in finances or do you want to be rich in family? You say, Pastor, I want both. And God gives some people both. He does. But if you're being forced to choose, which one would you rather have? Would you rather be rich in finances and lonely and miserable or would you rather live in a small cottage and have your family around you? I understand that some of you have set up your whole home structure in a way where you cannot run out of here this morning and find your way to an ideal biblical structure in a week or in a month or in a year. I understand that. But I would like for you to consider God's intent when he set up the home. I would like you to ask for godly wisdom as to how you can achieve this structure in your home. There are others of you here that you're a single mama. Regardless of how you got there, that's your reality. There are maybe even some single fathers here. And to you I say, I love you. I hope God pours His grace all over you. And I hope God provides and instills in you the wisdom to be both a mom and a dad for those children. If you're here today and you're a father raising children on your own, let me encourage you to get a woman, get some women in this church who can help teach your boys some grace and your girls uh, some womanhood. If you're a single mom here today, let me encourage you get your children in this church and have them here all the time. Let the men of this church teach your boys manhood and teach your ladies what it's like to interact with decent, respectable, godly men. This, this sermon this morning is not meant to make any uh, single mom feel guilty or feel less uh, or feel uh, awful that, that they're not following the perfect biblical model. The sermon today is meant rather to help those of you here who have a husband-wife team in the home to make sure that you are understanding God's model and structure that He set back in place 6,000 years ago, that you understand it and that you leave here and begin to work a plan to get yourself to that model as quickly as possible. 
This morning, through the person of Hannah, we're going to look at a woman who was an incredible mother. A woman who invested just a few short years of her life into her son, but raised a young man who would become Israel's greatest prophet. Hannah's life can teach us a lot of life lessons, but this morning we're going to focus on her role as a godly mother. My proposition this morning, I I propose that God's desire for each mother is to instill in each of their children's hearts a great love for God. How do you do this? How is this accomplished? T-I-M-E. That's how children spell love, by the way. T-I-M-E. The mother who knows the Bible, lives the Bible, teaches the Bible, and enforces the Bible is a mother who will raise children who please the Lord. This isn't just some theory. This can be achieved by you today. Let's look closely at quite possibly the greatest mother in the Bible in the person of Hannah. We're going to look at four principal observations about Hannah and then try to apply them to our hearts. Number one, take note, Hannah's desire for motherhood. Hannah's desire for motherhood. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 1 there and verse number 1. We'll notice letter A, her empty womb. Her empty womb. Letter uh, Verse 1 there. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathium, Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah had no children. You read on down, you'll see that her womb was bare, that the Lord had shut up her womb. She wanted babies uh, uh, very, very badly, but God had taken that away from her and had shut down her womb. There was no pointing the finger at Elkanah. Uh, it was not Elkanah's fault. Elkanah back then had two wives. That was a more common practice then than it is now. But Elkanah had babies with Penina, the other wife. But uh, uh, but her womb, Hannah's womb, was bare. And so Hannah knew, this is on me. My body is not producing babies. I don't know why, but I want a baby and I can't have one. She had a great desire for motherhood. Let her be notice her envious Adversary, her envious adversary. Look down at verse number four. And when the time uh, was, uh, in, and when the time was that Alcana offered, he gave to Penina his wife, and all her sons and her daughters' portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb, and her adversary, this is Penina, also provoked her sore, for to make her fret. Because the Lord had shut up the womb. i got to say, I can't imagine being married to two women. But I can't imagine being a woman that's married to a man that has another wife. Can you imagine the cat fights? Can you imagine the emotion and the drama? That's exactly what happened. And by the way, you can read other accounts. Jacob was married to four women at the same time. Leah and Rachel, and he married both of their handmaids. Um, Leah and Rachel, there was a lot of jealousy there between the two of them. And generally what happens is that the husband of more than one wife ends up picking one to be the favorite, and then the other one just becomes very jealous. And so here you have Hannah, who is loved more than Penina, 
but Hannah can't have babies. And so Penina's claim to fame was that uh, she had babies to give to her husband, but, but Hannah didn't. And so Penina did nothing but rib and poke and make fun of and belittle and, and, and be uh, uh, envious of Hannah. He kept loving Hannah, and that jealousy kept happening. Let her see, notice her emotional pain. Her emotional pain. Look at verse 7. And as he did, so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Look at down at verse 10. And she was in bitterness of soul. So every year they took a journey to Jerusalem, probably for the Passover. And as they're on their way to Jerusalem, Penina knew that one tender sore spot where she could get to Hannah. And she would, she would just put her finger on that pressure point and push. What was the pressure point? I have babies and you don't. Boy, this was a tender subject for Hannah. A tender subject for her. Oh, she wanted babies so bad and Penina had them and she did not. And she was, would not be envious of her, but it was a tender subject and it brought her to Tears, it created a bitterness or a nasty taste that went all the way down into her soul and she wept. And I can see them walking down the way and maybe uh, uh, Elkanah takes one of the children off the path to go to the bathroom or to get a bite to eat. And uh, Penina and Hannah are sitting there and Penina just continues to rub it in and rub it in and rub it in. I have babies and you don't. I, I, I have children to raise. I'm a mother and you're not. Now, some uh, some ladies that maybe attend here or that will hear this sermon or on online, uh, for one reason or another, God has not allowed you to have children, and maybe you uh, are walking through the mall and you see some uh, woman who's out of wedlock and uh, has uh, very little Christian character about her, and, and she's pregnant or she's walking kids down the the mall hallway there, and you're thinking, how come it is God that you give them babies, but you don't give me babies, and there can be a bitterness of soul there for you as. Well, And listen, I'm not going to try to answer that question this morning. That is a profound, profound question. The only thing I'll say about that is that the sin bug bites us all a little bit different. A little bit different. While God is no respecter of persons, sin is not a respecter of persons either. And sin affects all of us differently. And I'll say this, that uh, Hannah was bitter in soul, but she was not bitter toward God. Don't allow what seems to be an injustice to you. Make you bitter toward God. While she had emotional pain, she didn't have emotional bitterness toward God. Letter D, notice her earnest prayer. Her earnest prayer. Look down at verse number 10 of 1 Samuel 1. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. So prior to this, before we continue, prior to this, they get to where they're going. And they, uh, they, they go into the, the banquet hall and they sit down and they're going to eat. And Hannah is so upset over this that she has no appetite. There's fasting, there's fasting by way of giving up, methodically giving up food. And then there's fasting because you've just lost your appetite. Hannah was in that second category. No desire to eat. She is tore up over this. And so after everyone gets through eating and drinking, she picks herself up and she walks into the temple 
Uh, it would be like you showing up to the church on an off day and the building's open, but the auditorium's empty, a similar type setup. She walked into an empty temple and she fell down on her knees and began to weep and pray. Look at verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. There shall no razor come upon his head. Her earnest prayer. She begged and prayed that God would, would give her this child. Number one, we see Hannah's desire for motherhood. Number two, notice Hannah's diligence in motherhood. So what happened there? Those of you who don't know the story, Eli was the high priest He's sitting up, the Bible says there by the post, and he sees this woman whose mouth is moving in prayer, but no, no words are coming out of her mouth, and he assumes that Hannah is drunk. Drunk. And he says to her, hey, woman, what are you doing in the temple drunk? Shame on you. And she looks up and she says, my Lord, I'm not drunk. I'm sad. He, she doesn't tell him what the what she's sad about, but that she's making her request known to the Lord. And, and Eli looks at her and says, Ma'am, whatever it is that you're praying for, God is going to give you. You don't need to be sorrowful anymore. And to Hannah's credit, there's a great study on faith here that's not really the purpose of the message today, but I encourage you to go back to 1 Samuel 1 and, and study it. But Hannah gets up off her knees right there. There's no more sorrow. She goes to her husband and she's gleeful and happy the rest of the trip. And she goes home and and, and, and is with her husband and God gives them a child. Uh, God, the Bible says that God remembered her. He remembered her is the language there in the chapter. And she uh, is given a child and God uh, uh, get, grants her that wish. And so we see now that Hannah is a mother. Uh, she's been through the, the, the dregs of, of a barren, uh, of an empty womb and she's prayed and now God has granted this request. And so now we enter into watching Hannah as a mother. Hannah's diligence of motherhood, letter A, notice her perspective. Look down at verse number 20 of, first, uh, verse, uh, of, of chapter number 1. Her perspective. Verse 20. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. What if God had given Hannah her baby without making her wait? You ever ask yourself that question? What if God would have never made Hannah wait? During the time that her womb was bare, what happened to Hannah? Well, her heart was refined. She refocused on the Lord. And she realized that God had a plan. There was the refinement of her heart. There was a refocusing on the Lord. There was a realizing that God had a plan. It was Hannah who waited, not Penina. But it's Hannah's son we know by name. Penina's children, well, they've been lost in anonymity. What happened? What happened? In the time that Hannah was broken in spirit about not having children... God, uh, rather Hannah, gained an eternal perspective. She said this, in essence, God, if you will give me a son, 
Don't miss this here. You will give me a son, I will give him back to you. You know, that should have been Hannah's attitude before the empty womb. I tell my children this regularly. I, I wrap my arms around my son and, and hug him and we'll pray, pray together before we go to sleep. And I don't know, once every other month or so, I'll say something along this line to him. I'll say, son, you don't belong to me, you belong to God. I have been, I have been given the challenge of stewarding your life so that I can give you back to God one day. People will say to me, do you want your son to be a preacher? And I give the same answer every time. I want my son to be a man, and I want my son to love God. I don't want Matthew to follow my calling on his life. I want Matthew to follow God's calling on his life. I don't want April to follow my calling on her life. I want April from her mother to learn how to be a woman and to love God. That's it. If God wants my son to be a lawyer, then I want him to be the most godly lawyer that's ever walked the earth. If God wants my son uh, to be an architect, then he better be the most sincere, godly architect the world has ever known. God wants my daughter to grow up and be a single missionary to the the deepest, darkest jungles of, of China or Africa or South America. Then I want my daughter to grow up and love the Lord with all her heart and to do that to the best of her ability. You know why? Because my children don't belong to me. Oh, I've seen so many parents live vicariously through their children. They did not make uh, uh, the college Division I sports team that they so desired as a child. So they pushed their children, uh, be better, do better. Dad's lecturing and talking down to the son uh, all the way to the car after the Little League game or the AAU basketball game and said, you can do better, you can be better. I even saw a woman one time sit there and, and call her son 401K as he was pitching in a little league. They're trying to live vicariously through their children. And I'll say this to you is that you better lay to rest real quick the agenda you have for your children. And you better get your heart right with God and understand that those children are property of heaven. They do not belong to you, Mom. They do not belong to you, Dad. They belong to God. And He has tasked you with being a steward, not an owner of them. Hannah, through an empty womb, got a perspective that we all need to have. Now, God maybe didn't hold out on you to give you a baby, but He still wants you to have that proper perspective. Let her be, notice her purpose. Her purpose. Look at verse 22 of 1 Samuel 1. But Hannah went not up. For she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. The time was come when, again, they're going to take that yearly journey, that voyage to Jerusalem. And, and Hannah requested of her husband that she stay back. Why? Look at this. She stayed back so she could have one-on-one time with the baby. One-on-one time with the baby. 
She knew that she had been tasked with, and she was determined to pour every ounce of her being into raising that baby to love God. This would require her time. This would require her intellect. This would require her energy. This would require discipline. This would require every ounce of her being pouring into that child, pouring into him so that she could raise him and prepare him for the purpose of loving God with his heart. Hannah knew her purpose and she was determined to give it her all. Look here, notice this. Notice in 1 Samuel 1, 22. Her, her time was not split between taking a trip and raising her baby. Her first priority after God and her husband was the getting hold of the heart, gaining the heart of that child, and then molding, uh, the molding of the morals of her baby. Sadly, today society preaches to our moms that that they, they, they need to be busy about themselves and, and that they need to become something other than what God created them to be. Listen to this here. They pour out their best. They, 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 I'm sorry. They, they pour the best of who they are into the workplace instead of the crib. They give their time to a corporation and not a cradle. They, they give their energy to customers, not their children. Listen to this. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2014, 64% of women who had children under the age of six were employed or seeking employment. 70% of them were working a full-time job. A full-time job. Now, I understand, again, that some of you hearing this are single mothers, and for one reason or another, you don't have a choice. But uh, those of you who, who do, our society is broken because moms are busy making money. They're busy making money, and they're not raising their children themselves. I have a working theory. I, I, I can't totally prove it, but it's a working theory. And that is the reason why uh, uh, adults are shoving mom and dad in their old ears into nursing homes is because the mothers and fathers being put in nursing homes were too busy making money when those adult children were babies and they shoved them in daycares. And the attitude is if you're going to worship money when, I'm, when I was little, I'm going to worship money now that you're old. You aren't going to take care of me as a baby. I'm not going to take care of you in your old age. May we get back to a time and place where we quit worrying about how much of this we have, how big of a house we live in, and we start becoming more concerned with pouring ourselves into the families that God has given us. I know that this sermon this morning is not the most popular sermon I've ever preached. I know that this sermon this morning might step on a couple of toes. I know that the sermon this morning might go against some lifestyles in here. But my friend, I have been employed by heaven to preach the Bible and to hold up the structure of the home as God has given it. And instead of getting your feelings hurt this morning, I would encourage you to go home and study the Scriptures for yourself and, and, and see if you don't draw the same conclusions. What was her purpose? What was her purpose? Her purpose was to pour herself into that little boy and make him, make him a young man that had morals and character. Next week I'm going to be preaching a sermon. I'll go ahead and give you the title. It's entitled Parenting 101. Next Sunday evening sermon is titled Parenting 102. We're going to look at the simple, most basic parts of being a parent a parent by the Bible in the morning, and then in the evening we'll get into some more 
complex things. That's 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 next week's structure uh, uh, structure for the sermons. So I'm not going to dive too deep this morning into how to do these things, but philosophically up front, I want you to understand that this is what God's called you to do. Let her see, notice, her principles. Her principles. I love this. In fact, I think this might be the, the, uh, the theme verse of, of this whole story. Look at verse 23. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do it seemeth thee good, tarry until thou have weaned him, only the Lord establish His word. Moms, would you underline that phrase? Only the Lord establish His word. Only the Lord establish His word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. What did Elkanah, the father, and I believe Elkanah was a godly man, what did Elkanah tell Hannah when she requested to stay home and invest in her son? He told her, that's fine, but establish the Lord's Word. You can have all the one-on-one time you want with that baby boy. Establish the Lord's Word. There is another type of mom. This is a stay-at-home mom who is more concerned with filling her child's life with fun than with Christian character. How many of you believe that God's Word is powerful enough to change lives? Would you raise your hand if you agree with that statement? Are you teaching, are you having your children memorize the Bible? Are you teaching its truths regularly? Do you have Bible verses hung on the walls of your home? Do you tastefully and carefully teach Biblical truths and their stories, every chance you can. We, we say we believe the Bible is powerful enough to change lives, but are we living it? Are we living it? Are we teaching the principles of the Bible? Are we instilling them in the hearts and lives of our little ones? I love this quote. This is such a good quote. I had to work it in the sermon somewhere. I think it works here. No man is poor who has a godly mother. No man is poor who has a godly mother. Hannah's desire for motherhood. Number two, Hannah's diligence in motherhood. Number three, notice Samuel's dedication to the Lord. Samuel's dedication to the Lord. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 24. Uh, before we read there, um, uh, Hannah weaned Samuel, I imagine, knowing that once he was weaned, she was going to be giving him to Eli, she probably nursed him as long as possible. Four, maybe five years old. I don't know how old Samuel would have been, but I'm sure much longer than the average. Okay, uh, She probably stretched that out as long as she could. But Samuel is now to an age where he's weaned and he's ready uh, uh, to go and it probably potty trained. Look at verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the, of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli, Eli the priest. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. He worshipped the Lord there. 
Stratford is uh, it's a pretty Catholic city, isn't it? Let me ask this this morning. How many of you, at one point in your life, would have labeled yourself Catholic? Would you raise your hand? Hold them up there. Let me see. That's 60, 70% of the crowd. Um, you know what Catholics do with babies? They baptize them. They baptize them, right? They sprinkle them. Uh, and, and what is, that is supposed to uh, symbolize is that that's the first step into heaven, right? We don't baptize babies in this church because you can't find a single baby being baptized anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. It's not in here. It's not, and we're biblicists. But we do have a day of dedication. How many enjoy baby dedication day? The pastor holds the baby and he pulls on my lip and he plays with the microphone, right? And, uh, it's cute. But you know what dedication day is? It's not about dedicating the baby. It's about dedicating the parents. You know what uh, they were saying here? They were saying, Samuel, we're giving you over to the service of the Lord, but you're ready for this because we were dedicated to that cause. We were dedicated to that cause. You know, if, uh, if, if, if I hold your baby up here and I pray over him, and everybody laughs and smiles, and, you know, we give you the little pink or blue New Testament and the certificate and we do all those uh, fun things, take pictures after the service. If I pray over your child, there's not this spoofful dust that falls down on your child's head. The only way that child's going to turn out right is if you dedicate yourself to serving the Lord. What you need to do is tell the Lord, you gave us our child. And we are dedicating ourselves to raise this child to fulfill the purpose that you have laid out for his or her life. Number four, notice Samuel's devotion to the Lord. Samuel's devotion to the Lord. Now don't miss this. What I'm about to say, this is so important, alright? The most influential time in your child's life is the first five years. The first five years of your child's life, your child is going to learn half of what he will know at the age of 18. Half of everything your child will know between birth and 18, he will learn by the age of five. All the motor skills, a a large chunk of his vocabulary, the morals and the character in which the rest of his life will be guided by, most of that is taught and established in the first Five years of life. That is so important. Hannah taught Samuel character and integrity during that time. Hannah molded Samuel's heart to love God. Hannah taught Samuel self-control. Hannah taught Samuel respect and humility. How do I know this? How do I know this? Does the Bible tell us this? Well, not directly, but it does indirectly. Samuel moved into the temple and he was raised by Eli. Now, if you know anything about Eli and his parenting skills, if if I was going to preach a sermon in the Bible about the worst father in the Bible, (laughs) Eli would be my pick. Eli had two boys, Hophni and Phinehas. And these boys, they were terrible. Some of you here like your uh, steak not cooked real well. They liked it raw. You can read the story. They would dip that meat hook down in the cauldron. While the meat was, it meat had just hit the water, and they pulled it right out, and they'd eat this raw meat. 
They were uh, fooling around. I'll, I'll give you the PG version. Uh, they were fooling around with the females that were gathered outside the temple. They were taking them behind closed doors and doing things with them that were sinful on every level. The Bible labels Hophni and Phinehas as sons of Belial or sons of Satan. And the Bible tells us that the reason why these children were so terrible is because Eli would not restrain them. He would not tell them no. He would not tell them no. Now, I want you to think this through. Let's logically deduct, okay? Samuel, four or five years old, moves into the temple. And his new adopted dad is Eli. Eli has no parenting skills, yet Samuel still turns out right. Why? Because his mom had done her job. His mom had done her job. We moved to Terryville, Connecticut in 2013. Matthew was under the age of five and so was April. We moved into a 650 or 700 square foot apartment inside a church building. I got a job rolling tires off the end of a truck. You've all heard the story. Angela looked at me and she said, do you want me to go to work so we can have a little bit better living condition?" And I told her, I said, no. Just a couple of years ago, I preached in our Spanish church in, in, in Maryland that if we had to live in a cardboard box, you would instill the principles in our children. We're not going to let a daycare do that. And I said, we're going to live by that. And we lived in poverty. We lived in a very poor situation. Poverty by American standards, not by the world standards. I want to make sure I, I, I clarify that. And I worked long, hard hours. I grabbed every overtime minute I could while Angela spent every waking moment she could with our kids, instilling character and morals into them. Why? Because the first five years, the first five years are so important. Letter A, notice his focus. Speaking of Samuel's devotion to the Lord, his focus. Look at the young man that Hannah raised. Look at verse 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11. I'm almost done here. The Bible says, And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house. And the child, so they leave him there, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Where was Samuel's focus? Samuel's focus was not on pleasing Eli. Samuel's focus was on pleasing the Lord. I've shared this in here. I'll share it again quickly. When I'm done punishing Matthew or April, I have them apologize to God, not, not just me, not just their mom. You know why I'm raising them to put their eyes on the Lord? Samuel's focus was not on being a big deal to Eli or a hot shot in the temple. The Bible says that he ministered before the Lord. He's five years old. Maybe four years old. He's ministering before the Lord. All this going on while the sons of Eli are living vile, wicked lives. But that didn't throw Samuel off his game. He was focused. He was focused. You say, Pastor, not my child. Yes, you will buckle down, Mom, Dad, and you'll do your job. Your children, too, can be a Samuel. Let her be his future. His future. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and look at verse 19 with me. The Bible says there, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew what Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord, 
And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Again, Samuel's still a young man here. We don't know his age, but still a very young man here. He was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Now again, I don't know that God is going to call your children into vocational ministry. He may, he may not. I don't know that. I'm not going to pretend to know that. I know some pastors that push everybody to go into vocational ministry, and the children that don't are shunned and, and, and put down. That's not my style. I don't believe that God wants everybody to be a pastor or a pastor's wife. But I will say this, God does want your children to love Him and to serve Him. And He wants your children to be faithful to church. He wants your children to find that calling. There is the known will of God. It's, it's found right here between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 22-21. It's right there. That's the known will of God for our lives. Then there's an unknown will of God. Who a person marries, what their career is to be, where they're to go to church, where they're to live. The list can be a long list. How does a person discover the unknown will of God? By loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God reveals those things. Let her see, notice his foundation. Look back at verse 20 of 1 Samuel 3. It says, And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, look at this, knew that Samuel was established. Would you underline that for me? Knew that Samuel was established. What was Samuel's foundation? Well, remember back in 1 Samuel 1.23? You remember that? Only the Lord established His Word. Only the Lord established His Word. Why was Samuel established to be a prophet? Because the Lord's Word had been established in his heart. Who established God's Word in his heart? His mother. His mother. God's plan for your child or children is as unique as your child. This is the crux of the sermon this morning. If you will seek to establish God's Word in their heart, if you will seek to establish godly habits in your children's heart at a young age, if you will seek to establish godly decision-making in their hearts in their teen years, if you will seek to establish godly principles that guide and guard and govern their life, then God will establish your child smack dab in the middle of His perfect plan. Samuel's foundation was the Bible. But it was his mother who poured herself into Samuel's life and established this foundation. But what if Hannah had been working instead of taking care of Samuel? What if Hannah had just relied on babysitters all the time? What if Hannah had placed in Samuel her own agenda instead of God's agenda? Then Samuel would have never become the prophet to lead Israel during some of its most difficult times. The purpose of the sermon this morning is not to make you mad. The purpose of the sermon this morning is to encourage you to be a Hannah. It's to encourage you to love your children the way God meant for you to do so. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning.
Samuel become, became a great man because Samuel had established a relationship with God. Samuel was not reliant on a religion. Samuel was reliant on a relationship. The world is filled with dead, cold religion. Religion alone will take you straight to hell one day. But if you'll put your faith and trust in Jesus and accept the fact that you're a sinner unworthy of heaven, you understand that Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus became, Jesus who is God, left heaven, became man, lived a perfect life. He hung on the cross so he could suffer for you in your place. If by faith you trust Jesus and his finished work, he'll save you. Samuel became a great man because his relationship with God was real and genuine. And you can begin that journey today. How many here today say, Pastor, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus to save me. If I died today, I know I'd go to heaven. Not because of me and my good works, because of what Jesus did on the cross for me. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand by way of testimony? I know that I've put my faith in Jesus. Is there one here today who'd say, Pastor, I don't know that. If I were to slip into eternity today, there's at least a sliver of chance God would not let me in. Pastor, would you pray for me? If you're here and that's you today, I I don't want to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you just slip your hand up and slip it right back down? Is there one? How many here today say, Pastor, I have allowed the culture... I have allowed Satan's work in the culture at large to taint me and to taint my home. And Lord, uh, Pastor, there are some things that we need to adjust so that we are raising our children the way that God intended. Pastor, would you pray that God would give us the wisdom as we make some tough decisions? If that's you and you're here today, would you just slip up your hand? I'd like to pray for you. Lord, I do pray, God, that you would help help our homes to be biblical. Help our homes to follow a model that pleases you. Lord, our children are being raised in a generation of wickedness. Sin abounds everywhere. And God, if we're not giving them true Christianity at home and at church, then they're not going to get it. So, Lord, may we follow the Bible as purest. May our women who are mothers be moms that please you. Help us, Lord, with these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. The piano is going to play. The altar is open. I would encourage you to come and kneel and pray. Talk to the Lord. Wouldn't be a bad idea for some of you husbands and wives to come down and kneel, talk to the Lord in prayer. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom. You would raise your children right.